Okie dokie. So, um, somebody throw out an answer to the first question on the quiz there. All the above. Munich triplex. Very good. Try. Um, and then the second and uh, the second, perhaps more important question. Uh, opportunities to share the gospel, invite people in, talk about the faith, whatever degree that might look like. Um, I didn't get a chance to review any, so um, just shout out if you had any good opportunities to talk to folks this week. Um, so Thursday we had like a Schwab team dinner thing. Um, towards the end we got to talking about like what motivates us to do what we do. Yeah. I brought it up. <laughs> good. And, um, and it, anyway, I was able to just talk about it. Because of what God did for me, I'm trying, I strive to do things in my life for his glory just to thank him. So I, I, was, I told him, like, you know, because Christ died for me and I didn't ask for it, he just did it for me. And um, all my life, he just does more things. And even a little thing. Awesome. That's cool. And it sounds like there were more than one around at that point. Yeah, there were like seven. Awesome. Fantastic. Other contributions on talking to folks in general this weekend? Yeah, I was able to talk to. Any others? I mean, that's fine. Sorry, thank you. Um, I guess I have a really good conversation with my sister. Who, oh, good. Um, she's, she believes in God, but she has a lot of you know, questions and, and doubts about a lot of the stuff that's in the Bible. So I guess I have a really good <coughs> conversation with her. She was very open to listening to what I had to say, and it was just. Very good. Keep up the good work, you guys. Appreciate striving to reach out and to share the gospel with folks. It's critical. Um, summary from last week. This is uh, from Nathan's lesson. Uh, Christ has sent the Holy Spirit. This was, sorry, over verses 6 through 11. Christ has sent the Holy Spirit to empower his people to proclaim the good news throughout the world. Christ's ascension is the seal of authenticity of his ministry on earth. He is still working in heaven as prophet, priest, and king, Munich Triplex. Just as he went up into heaven, so also he will return again to judge the living and the dead. And that's sort of where we cap things off. Jesus is gone. The apostles are staring up into heaven. So let's pray. And then we're going to jump into verses 12 through 26. And uh, this will be about the general kind of size of a text that we're going to be attempting to move through Acts at this 12 to 15 verse speed. Father, I want to thank you so dearly for tonight, for your word, for your people. And I pray that um, we would catch the thrust of what you're attempting to do through sending your spirit on your people, Lord. And I pray that as your kingdom uh, is made manifest to people, uh, in the book of Acts here, we would, we would want and that would fuel this intense desire for more people to see that you are reigning over the cosmos even now. You are enthroned and you are interceding for your people speaking your word over them. So God, I pray that we would love you and love your word more as a result of this text. In Jesus' name. So tonight's passage I've entitled Setting the Scene. And the reason for this is that 
I kind of consider this a connective passage in the overall narrative. The pinnacle is, I think, going to, well, not the pinnacle of the book per se, but a very high point is going to come with the episode of Pentecost. We've had something major happen already with the ascension. What happens in between serves a purpose, but we're sort of in between two mountaintop experiences here in the book of Acts. There's a sense in which we're building tension in the narrative, and this would go for any story that you're familiar with. If you're watching a movie or something, you're, you're expecting there's some sort of tension building to a climax of some sort. This is often portrayed through music that has a high sense of dissonance in it. Something doesn't feel quite right. There's a tension in it. Um, if you're astute in noticing uh, how uh, cinematographers design frames, right, you'll notice they will even tilt the camera somewhat to show something's askew. Uh, a bobbling camera shows instability, right? These are all techniques that we're using in storytelling in order to build tension in a narrative to some sort of climactic point that the author of that film is attempting to draw out. The main thing in the foreground, the music, the cinematography style, all build to those points. And I think what we're going to see Luke doing here through Peter and, and Peter's comments here is that we're really setting the scene and we're building towards this climactic event at Pentecost in the wake of what has already happened with the Ascension. So we're going to begin with our first section here, verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So the church that is going to explode at Pentecost really starts as a pretty intimate family gathering here in the upper room. We don't know if this is the same upper room that they would have met in for the Passover dinner. But the narrative picks up with the disciples coming back from uh, Mount of Olivet, which is a critical point in eschatological thought for Judaism. Zechariah 14, 4 through 5. The apostles are coming down from this mountaintop, and possibly, I wouldn't stake my life on this, but I think this prophecy would indicate that Jesus is also going to return in the same place, in the same way in which he went as well, Zechariah 14. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward, the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azul, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So you have all of these texts in mind for the apostles that are indicating something eschatological is happening here. And they're talking about the kingdom. This is what Jesus is instructing them on. The disciples are saying, Nathan, cover this. When is the kingdom going to come? And Jesus responds with sort of this inaugurated comment to say, it's not really coming like you expect. But then he immediately ties it with the coming of the spirit. That's when the kingdom will really break in. And so we're waiting for this moment where via the Spirit, they're waiting there until something is going to come, Spirit, the promise of the Father, and then they're going to go out to all the nations. So Jesus is reframing their kingdom thinking into waiting for the Spirit. And that's kind of where we're at right now. We're kind of in a holding pattern. If you're one of the apostles, we're waiting on what Jesus said. And he's clearly tied this to a moment when the kingdom is going to arrive. <clears throat> This is going to be a massive movement that comes from rather humble beginnings. We have 120 people here in this room. It's not to say that that's all of the followers that Jesus had amassed. More than likely, he speaks to crowds of 500. You know, I mean, he's seeing a lot of people after the resurrection. But at least in some sort of tight-knit circle here, Jesus has got about 120 people who are committed to being together in this upper room. I was talking to my prayer group about this, but 
notice they're not really concerned with the small relative size of this group. They're concerned about faithfulness to obey God. And that is where we're kind of building to in these first few verses is that they're going to be one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women of Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. We're not concerned by the fact that there are only a couple people. And 1950s, 60s onward in America, what has been the main metric of success for churches? Numbers, right? This is how we gauge in America productivity, efficiency, you go to a pastor's conference, right, and you meet somebody, what are they going to say? Hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm from so-and-so city, and I have a church of X size, or my church is this physical building size. That is how culture in America has largely overlapped with the church in order to inform what we consider truly successful. And yet we have really humble beginnings here in the church. It's, it's a different culture than what we have. It's, it's not characterized by large numbers for success. It's characterized by three things that the apostles are doing. This is what they're concerned to be doing faithfully. They are in one accord with each other. They're devoting themselves to prayer. And they have, this is going to be a theme throughout Acts, Luke is going to be keen on including the role of women in the book. There is an element of inclusivity that would have struck the original reader that the 120 that he's talking about is including women. This is a, a key feature of what this Jesus movement is going to look like as it's going to be breaking down various barriers within the Roman world. Um, unity, prayer, inclusion across lines. What would God be able to do with a church that really dedicated themselves to those three points as the telos or the goal of their expansion and not just having numbers for the sake of having numbers. There's nothing wrong with numbers, but if we lose sight of loving people, being unified with them, and praising the Lord, then there is something wrong with how we're pursuing those issues. So first one I want to park on for a moment is unity. Quite honestly, could we stand to be with each other as much as these 120 individuals are the time that they're spending with each other? You're, we're going to see in just a couple chapters here, they are going to the temple every day. They are spending a lot of time together. More, and I, I think of all groups that I could ever say this to, this group does really well at spending time together. But if we look at the large landscape of the church, Service is over, and if you want to, break out a phone timer and see how long it takes everyone to scatter out of an auditorium. It is fast. People don't tend to spend time with each other and be in one accord. And so that is the first thing I want to say is, can we stand to be together this much? There's an American hyper-individualism that I don't think is necessarily helpful for human flourishing. Extreme isolation hyper-introversion, if I can use that term in a loose sense, is not necessarily what I would consider the most congruent attitude towards being part of a thriving church. Humans were meant to live in community, and that's not something that this particular culture has really emphasized. It's how you can be successful on your own. And are Americans more productive than most of the world as a result of that culture? Probably, but it also comes at a huge cost. Right? There are trade-offs to cultures that are extremely productive and individualistically mind, uh, minded. Nothing wrong with the pros to that. I'm not here to say, you know, success and hard work are, are bad values. They're they're clearly good, but at the cost of not spending a lot of time in community, then I would say yes, we we do have a concern to be legitimately worried about, and. Beyond that, I would say perhaps the reason that we, that we avoid togetherness is because we, we only have a, a thin veneer of community and togetherness. In a culture that is really lonely out there, a community that is actually tight-knit, in my experience, is one of the most attractive things to people. 
people are looking for somewhere to belong. And to see people that can actually put up with each other for an extended period of time is pretty profound. But I would say on the converse, one of the reasons that we don't do so well with being together is basically a mindset is I can only put up with these people for so long and then after that I just I honestly cannot take it anymore so please I'm gonna book two hours and at the end of two hours I'm out of here and that's it that's all I can take and so first I'd say that that probably won't work in a family for too long and that's why you get a very real side of people in family because you can't just uh, well you shouldn't just escape you shouldn't just escape those things. And that's where you see people's real colors come out. And so we avoid intimacy because it's going to reveal our, our true colors. We, you, can, you can fake it for an amount of time, but you really can't fool everyone forever. So proper solution is dying to self and learning to be patient with people, not avoiding a, a tight community. And, and we need to develop that sort of patience that can that cannot fall back on titles of introversion and avoidance and, and can really afford to spend time together. Okay, prayer. And this one is as, about as obvious as it sounds, but are we praying for one another consistently? Are we praying for uh, the kingdom to come? Are we praying for the lost world as we're attempting to reach out to people more? Are we actually seeking the Lord's guidance to provide opportunities in a culture that is individualistic and hard to connect with people on a deeper level. There are only so many ways to conjure up talking to people and without some sort of divine providential circumstance, it can be difficult. This is something we should be considering in our prayer life. But even, uh, uh, I'm saying this because I thought of myself here, how are we doing with prayer cards, right? We take one home, but, you know, I mean, are you really praying for it? Uh, that, that for me is like, well, that's, that's a, great, it's a great thought, but it's almost more condemning when you take it home and let it sit on the counter and don't do anything about it. So are we praying for each other? Are we praying for a lost world? Are we praying for the kingdom to come in a more full sense? And I was talking to uh, Nate this week. We don't, we don't advance, uh, Nate Mesa, we don't, we don't advance the kingdom. We don't enlarge the kingdom's borders. Jesus is king over the cosmos, and we encourage people to recognize that Jesus is already enthroned as Lord at the ascension. You're not going to be building the kingdom to a larger degree. Jesus is king over the whole universe, and the church is a smaller concentric circle inside of a larger kingdom, and we're trying to get as many people in this ship as we can, so to speak. Uh, third, Mark... Uh, I would juxtapose against looking at it by popularity is inclusivity in, in a good sense, in a good sense. The critique against the majority group, whatever that might be, whether it's race or socioeconomic status or gender, the, the lesson I think is consistently to include people. You can throw out whatever kind of click that you want, whether that's on communication skills, being cool, being talented, however whatever group wants to set that up. But the lesson to the majority group within that group is always to be inclusive of people who are, are not a part of that larger group. I, I think the whole of scripture, and I'm, I'm Romans 14.3 here, the critique to the minority group in scripture is that if, if you have genuinely been included kindly, then don't mandate that everyone look exactly like you do, whether that's race or gender or status or whatever the case may be. The one who has been included should not also then demand that everyone else look like them. And as I was thinking about an example, I'm gonna move away from more charged topics. I, I thought of Donovan and D&D, right? You were the sole D&D player in this group for what, four? years probably, right? I included you out of the grace of my heart, no. Um, <laughs> but, um, but now you have other people who are there with you and it's enjoyable and that's fun. But he wasn't out here demanding that everyone play D&D. And I think there's a grace to that where the majority is inclusive of the minority and the minority is understanding that not everyone is going to have the same interests and the same 
everything as the other party. And Paul, Paul is so always balanced on everything that he's commending to the church, Romans 14.3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. This has to do with meat offered to idols in its immediate context, but the reason that I think it's such a relevant passage is that meat offered to idols tends to be more racially based. We have a Gentile audience in Rome, and we have a Jewish crowd in Rome, and Paul's working on how do we reconcile those. Paul's advice is recognizing that both sides can have contention towards the other, and that true inclusion is going to be found in neither despising the strong or uh, shunning the weak. And so what do we see from this is that the women, Mary the mother of Jesus, his brothers, all these identity markers are transcended by the identity marker of child of God. Yes, you're going to retain your unique intersections, if I can use a little bit of cultural lingo. That's fine. I'm not going to cease to be a male, for instance. Can I get an amen? Amen. Um, uh, Hallelujah. But but my identity, but my identity is not fundamentally in being a male. My identity is fundamentally in being a child. Second, verses 15 through 20a, if I may so divide this text, that may flow better as one, but um, verse 15 through 28, I don't think I highlighted it. If someone would just be willing to read it. This is where I really think Peter sees this dissonance growing, and we see that God is going to win over the enemies of his church. Verses 15 through 20a. Somebody call it out. Who's got it? In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers... The company of persons was all was in all about 120, and said, "Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out." And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Bacchaldana, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. Perfect. So Peter, you know, Peter's kind of the guy to see the obvious and say the obvious. And there's a tension that's building here. We just played Among Us last night, so this is perfect. There's one of us who is not like the others here, and Judas has been ejected from the party. Okay, We have an issue here. Judas is no longer with the apostles. But from the divine point of view, what's amazing about this, and this was part of my very first lesson on Acts, is that from the divine point of view, everything is all right and is on schedule in God's sovereign plan for his church. Interestingly, scripture had to be fulfilled. This is the word that it, Jesus saw it as necessary to go to the cross. Same word, family. It's a, it is necessary that scripture had to be fulfilled. God ordained this instance of Judas, and he ordained the whole crucifixion of Christ, Acts 2.23. So God is sovereign over evil and uses the free will of individual actors to accomplish his sovereign ends. Did Judas incur moral culpability as a free agent acting in the death of Jesus? Absolutely. Was it God's foreordained plan and knowledge to deliver Jesus up to be crucified by human agents? Yes. And that is a tough one to wrap our minds around. It is. There is no way around the fact that this is a difficult topic. But God is sovereign over evil and uses the free will of individual actors to accomplish his sovereign ends. Free will is bent on evil continually. 
God is also able to use that free will in a way that accomplishes sovereign ends without incurring sin to his name. Very, very simple way to explain this. I say that. <laughs> I think about uh, spaghetti, but that's not very helpful. Um, the common, <laughs> you know this, you know when you pour out spaghetti and it's one size, two size, three size, four size, four people? No, never, okay. All right. <laughs> yes, yes, out of the, right, okay, okay. I'm gonna drop the analogy, I'm gonna give you the substance. Here's what I'm gonna say. If you were left to yourself with no restraining influence of the grace of God on humanity, you would do nothing but evil all the time. God has a grace that restrains human evil so that we're not absolutely depraved. You still see vestiges of externally good actions in society. All God has to do in order for you to sin in an incredibly specific way is not provide grace to stop you from doing what you want to do. It is entirely what you want to do. It is the restraining grace of God that you don't exert that evil at every possible venture in your life as an unredeemed individual. The Westminster Confession puts it this way, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away but rather established. That's the amazing part about that statement, is the contingency of second causes isn't just not taken away, it's established by God using free will to accomplish his ends in the earth. Is this a contentious matter? Yes, it is. And that's understandable. However, this should be a matter of praise. Uh, Romans eleven thirty two through thirty six. This is this is what I, genuinely it pains my heart about how how the frame around the sovereignty debate has gone is that it exits a doxological sphere and enters a sphere that is merely pure philosophical abstraction, and it should be placed in the context that provides a praiseworthy look to God for being king of the world. Romans 11, 32 through 36. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him all things to him no evil deed, no tragic occurrence, no bad happenstance ever takes God by surprise. God is not learning and growing with us in con contradiction to open, the uh, open theism or progress theology. God is not shocked when something goes wrong in the world. Rather, he is using all of these things weaving a beautiful tapestry to advance his kingdom to his glory. Often, evil is the means by which God accomplishes the good he intends to do. Lots of passages you can turn to. Strongest proof text to this point is when it's explicitly stated, Genesis 50, 19 through 20. Belief in the sovereignty of God in life is the only meaningful way to have joy in sorrowful times. There are other ways to have joy during sorrowful times, but I would argue that they're a psychological panacea. They are something that you are just using to cope to, uh, to 
get through tough times. And this is even evidence in secular world where they'll say something to the effect of, my faith got me through. There is no object to that faith, but it is a positive frame of mind that gets me through tough times. If you are going to maintain a meaning to the world, recognize that there is human suffering, recognize that everything doesn't go right, and that there is a glorious end to this world, then you have to believe that there is a God who is orchestrating this picture and that you are on the backside of this rug where the tapestry looks really confusing, but when you flip it over and see it from the other side, it's a beautiful, a beautiful portrait that the Lord is painting. So when things go wrong in ministry and in life, in the darkest night for your soul, you, you must recognize that God is in control and is the fountain of life for you. I, uh, dark nights of souls have struck some and life has sprung for others as the Cowboys lost. And I texted, I texted Tony. I, I said, Tony, I need to know, do you need counseling? After? <laughs> and um, his response is, <laughs> he said, no, this was ordained from the foundation of the world by God. <laughs> so, okay, fair enough. Um, but this is, so Judas, Judas has left the faith. That's where we are in historical context. But people still leave the faith. People still deconstruct. People still have massive moral failures. And that usually takes people away from the church with them who have, have placed some measure of faith in that person's ministry. You say, is that really necessary that this would happen to the church today? And I would say, yes, it is necessary that it happens. Because for whatever reason, God has ordained that it's going to advance the church in some way. And I have no idea what that looks like. We should not advocate that people go out and sin, that grace may abound. And yet, somehow, God is going to work that out for the advance of his, of his church. I can't answer everything about why God would allow that to happen. But he allows it to happen because he could prevent it from happening. He could prevent it from happening. This should be an encouragement and not a discouragement. That's, that's difficult, right? Bad things happen. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's always a discouraging topic. But to recognize that somehow this whole mess of life is really working out for God's greatest glory and our greatest good is the only thing that gives hope into difficult, difficult times. We get some really graphic language here in the text about Judas's demise. Very graphic language. And there's some reconciliation to be done in some other texts that you can pursue in the commentaries of how, he, how Judas died in Matthew and how that overlays with Acts. I'm, I don't think there's a lot of value to that for our purposes here, but it's, it's an understandable pursuit. What I think the point to being so graphic is, and, and notice this, this is not the only time that Luke is going to be graphic about how somebody dies in the book of Acts. You only have to think to uh, Herod. He is eaten up with worms. It's a very graphic episode. Why the graphicness? I would, I would contend that this is because when, when somebody opposes the church, the message is that those who oppose God will be crushed. It's a harsh reality, but Judas opposed Herod tried to steal glory. People are going to stand against the kingdom of God. God is going to win. And that's, that's a tough message to hear. God is victorious over evildoers like Judas. He's victorious over glory stealers like Herod. People um, object to this quickly with a, a very simple trope, an understandable trope once again. Um, what God, like how could a good God do this to people that are not that bad? How could, it's a, it's a euphemism, but how could Judas go to his place, which is a euphemism for hell? How could a good God do that to people? And I think it is a fair response to say to those folks, again, 
I appreciate the emotional pull of that argument in, in live interactions with people. But people have not wrestled deeply and grappled with what it means to have an infinite offense against the highest power in the universe. If you offend me, that, that isn't really worthy of hell. I'm not such a high authority that it's an infinite transgress against me, but any violation against God is an infinite transgress. And so this is, this is harsh. This is a harsh punishment from God against Judas and Ananias and Sapphira is another very graphic episode. It's an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. And until we're able to grapple with that point, this is going to seem incredibly, incredibly difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Peter goes on to quote Psalm 69, 22 through 28. It's a psalm where David is struggling with the enemies of him, of himself. But if you put your place, yourself in the place of the enemy of David, the response should not be, how could God infinitely punish? The, the question should be, how could God offer to me, someone as wretched as me, grace? How is that even possible? And God has to go to inf like incredible lengths to get around himself. He saves you from him. That's, he is the problem and the solution. He is the one to be feared. God is the one to mete out punishment. He's saving you from himself. And so David has enemies in Psalm 69. And Peter applies this to the sufferer par excellence, Jesus. Jesus is the antitype to David's type in the Old Testament. And so what we see here is an application of David to Jesus, Pssalm 69, 22 through 28. Notice what's right after the quoted part uh, from Acts 2. It's a really interesting parallel. Psalm 69. Let them turn the table before them became, become a snare. And when, it, when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. And make their lions tremble continually. Pour out your in, indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolate. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him who you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. And to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the books of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Notice that, that bit right there where the wicked are persecuting the one whom God has struck down. This is a very Christologically heavy statement. Judas is in the place of the one who is striking Jesus, the one whom God is striking for our sins. Did you have more in that text? Did I catch up? Okay. Um, so David is suffering. He's the representative of Israel. King, kingly figures are representative of the whole body, and Jesus is the sufferer and king par excellence. God is going to destroy David's enemies, and in a much more full sense, God is going to reign over the principalities and powers against King Jesus in the world as well. But from the human point of view, that was all from the divine point of view, this, this, is, this is tough to be a Judas figure. All right, there are tensions here throughout this text, right? Everything's going great from God's perspective and from the church's, but it's not going great from Judas's perspective, and it still is not going great from Judas's perspective. This is such an interesting phrase that just stuck out to me. Verse 18, the reward of his wickedness. I thought about that. By God's grace as Christians, we never commit this final apostasy that Judas did. And yet, whenever we idolize anything like Judas did, money, power, influence with the Sanhedrin, us, money, power, influence, ambition, sex, whatever the case might be, whenever you worship something other than God, the reward of that wickedness is a path to death. Going down a path of idolatry of any sort should serve as a warning to us that any worship other than the one true God is something that is the way towards death. Proverbs 7, 18 through 27. I picked this one. This one has to do more with sexual content, but what an, what an idol that is 
in the, in the church, in culture in general. And yet, what is the result of someone who idolizes sex and pleasure that comes with it? Proverbs 7, 18 through 27. It's the same fate that Judas faced. Come, let's drink deeply of lovemaking until morning. Let's feast on each other's love. My husband is at home. He went on a long journey. He took a bag of silver with him and will come home at the time of the full moon. She seduces him with her persistent pleading. She lures with her flattering talk. He follows her impulsively like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer bounding toward trap, until an arrow pierces its liver, like a bird darting into a snare. He doesn't know it will cost him his life. Now, sons, listen to me, and pay attention to the words from my mouth. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray onto her paths, for she has brought many down to death, her victims are countless. Her house is the road to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. We want to be very quick to say, I'm not at all like Judas. I'm nothing like Judas. And yet every time you idolize something, you're doing the same thing that Judas did, rejecting the one true God that is before you to be worshipped. Now, Here's the difference. God has so much grace and picks us up every single time that we fall as children of God. Doesn't make it any better. It's the same idolatry. It's the same root. It's the same pride. It's the same sexual desire. It's the same money desire that reigned over Judas to the end. It's a deadly path to walk. Finally, Peter in verses 20 through 26 the latter part of verse 20, pivots, quotes another psalm, Psalm 109, I think, off the top of my head. Uh, it's a very parallel psalm. But he looks and says, okay, here's a situation. Judas is out. Where are we going from here? And this is, we're running up this ramp to shoot off into Pentecost. This is where the meta narrative is going to get pretty crazy here, verses 20 through 26. <clears throat> For it's written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And also, let another take his office. So none, so none of the men who have accompanied us, oh sorry, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called, Joseph called Barabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The narrative, the narrative here has been building to something. It's been building to the need for there to be twelve apostles. Why is there this need for there to be twelve apostles? Back in the first section, we had eleven apostles listed out. Peter stands up, says, hey, there's an issue. There's not 12 apostles. The next section of the narrative has to do with how we get back to 12 apostles. Why is this the link from the ascension to Pentecost? What I'm going to argue here is that the church of God is set to become true Israel. And why the 12 apostles? With the apostles, Jesus was reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel. He comes in from his baptism. He's driving demons out, like the Canaanites, as an apportionment for the land as he selects 12 apostles. It's all part of his true Israel, returning from exile theme, where he is setting up to a new true Israel. Now, I think what I'm going to argue for as we come to Pentecost is that we see Sinai, Motifs, we see a lot of indications that 
A new Israel has come. This is the times of refreshing that has been prophesied for Israel for so long, and this is going to be found in the church of Jesus Christ. So if we're going to have a reconstituted Israel, we need to have our tribes of Israel in a typological sense re, uh, refigured. So this prepares the way for our Pentecost narrative. And as you see, what happens right at the finish of what Josh read, if you take out the chapter marks, which weren't originally there, like we read on the first day, and our introduction is just the first two chapters is one whole thing. And they cast lots for them, fell Matthias. He was numbered with the 11 when the day of Pentecost arrived, right? That's the next thing. And then right down in verse 14 in chapter 2, Peter standing with the 11. There, there's an importance to the fact that all 12 apostles are together. They are the witnesses of this new people that God is bringing together. He's going to undo the curse of Babel, right? We're going to get into a lot of these really, really interesting um, biblical ties. But this prophecy, um, this prophecy has an inaugurated fulfillment um, in, uh, in Pentecost when the kingdom seems to come near. So Luke 22, uh, 28 through 30, the apostles are said that they're going to be rulers. Or they're going to judge the 12 <coughs> tribes of Israel. And this is, I didn't get to read the whole thing, but it was a helpful summary of the points is that this is Luke's fulfillment of his own recorded prophecy in Luke 22 when the apostles are going to rule and reign over Israel. This starts at Pentecost. In an inaugurated kingdom, the apostles become judges over a new Israel beginning at Pentecost, Luke 22, 28 through 30. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What's the confirmation for that? When did Jesus say that the kingdom was going to come? When the spirit comes. That's when the kingdom is going to be more manifest. That's why I keep using that terminology. Jesus is enthroned as a Lord, but it's really going to kick high gear when we get the spirit coming. Okay, kingdom's here. Guess who is ruling and reigning? The apostles over a new Israel. Notice the parallels here. They cast lots for the apostles, and they also cast lots for which tribes would get what land? Joshua 18.6. And you shall write a description of the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. Then I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. And so two men met the qualifications for what this was, uh, what they were going to cast lots for. Notice, by the way, that they didn't throw this all to chance. There was still prudence in this. They got it down to two men who perfectly fit the bill. And then they laid it before the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but God is over the, the rolling of dice, basically. And so what we have here is that the apostle has to be someone who has been with the whole ministry of Jesus. He has to be there with Jesus as an eyewitness to the whole thing. And this is a great defense point for saying that there are not more apostles to be had today. Paul does fit the bill. Why? He, he had a time with Christ in a different sense, and I don't think Paul himself would, uh, would not say that there's something different. He refers to himself as one untimely born. Paul is going to be a very interesting case when we get to this. Peter's the one that's going to be on display for now in the front part of the book of Acts. But this is what it means to be an apostle, and so they've narrowed it down. These two men have been with us through the whole thing. They've been with us through the whole thing, and God chose... Matthias. I was really hoping Matthias would be here tonight, actually, just for this moment. Um, but God knew Matthias's heart just as well as he knew Judas's heart. Coming off of this, I think that's such an interesting comment. Peter says, God knows your heart. He knew Judas's heart, too, is the implication. And he chooses Matthias. God's plan is going to be correct. In ministry, outreach, evangelism, family, whatever the case might be, you can have everyone fooled about your true intent. Judas had uh, pretty much everyone in the apostolic camp fooled. I don't think anyone really knew uh, what was fully going on until after the whole thing, after the dust settled. He had them fooled, but he did not have the Lord Jesus fooled from the time that he joined the group. 
And so you might have everyone fooled in your motivations for ministry, and it's easy to do. It's easy to know what people respond to well. It's easy to develop the lingo. Have your own corrupt motivation, but you know how to spin it to put it in the right language so that people accept it in, in conservative spheres. And man, you can, you can make it a long way in church leadership, and people do, while being entirely hypocritical about their motivation. But you are not fooling one person, and that, that is the audience that will count for all of eternity. I mean, it, you, w often in like what? Within the scriptures. It is certainly something that is done frequently in the Old Testament, definitely, yeah. What? I'm guessing there's a cross reference between is it the Psalms or Proverbs that says the lot is cast in the lap, the decisions from the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, so the apostles were probably drawing on that. Correct, which, which definitely um, indicates here, uh, at the very least, point A is they're committing it to God's sovereignty to pick, since they probably have that text in mind. I'm also arguing that the, the reason that this would be included in such a fashion is it fits the typological motif of why are we using uh, lots, or casting a lots. It mirrors how the land was distributed between the 12 tribes of Israel. And so I think that is one possible reason. And this goes back to my introduction to the beginning of Acts to say, not everything that we see in the book of Acts is normative for all I mean, that's what they did. It's not prescriptive for the church today. It's not a pattern that we see throughout even the book of Acts as something that is like, oh, very clearly God wants us to do this. I disagree with folks who are in the camp that say Matthias was the wrong choice. God's choice was, uh, was Paul. I think we clearly see indications that Peter is using scripture. He is receiving God's sanction and the witness of the church as a way to prepare for Pentecost and that God is going to do something unique with Paul. Um, but I also don't see this as something that's normative for the church's practice. But it is, it is common biblically. There's no way around that. Is that helpful? Okay. Um, returning to the motivations comment, don't try to fleece the flock for your own gain. Paul is going to refer to this as sordid gain, if you can use that terminology. Always think of this in the terms of monetary gain, or at least it's a natural inclination. Think of this in the offering where Jesus says, uh, don't let your tithe or your charity be known to other men. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You always think about this in the context of money. But there are a lot of ways to fleece the flock. And you can be poor, uh, but ambitious for status, for power, over people. There is an authority that comes with being in leadership in the church. Only have to look a couple chapters later to Simon the Magician. Wants to do cool stuff. There's a lot of motivations. And there's a lot of ways to fleece the flock. God knows the motivations of your heart. And it's not just if, if you don't embezzle money. That's not the only way you can steal from the church. You can steal glory to your name as opposed to ascribing it to the Lord's. And I would say that, that ambition to be known, to be seen, is probably, in our celebrity pastor context, one of the more dangerous ways, not that embezzlement is unknown either, but the, the notoriety, the celebrity pastor, is one of the ways that we really, really have to be on guard as leaders in the church. Now, altering point of view here. God didn't choose justice. I can't help. Okay, right? You want to be Matthias in this narrative. What if you're justice? I mean, that, that kind of sucks, right? I mean, you're narrowed down by the rest of the apostles to be one of the other two to join the boy band, and then somehow you're just out of the office. That's, that's got to be kind of rough. I mean, at least it, you would you'd think from a human point of view, it would be. And uh, yet here's the incredible point to me, is that neither Matthias nor uh, justice are emphasized from here on in the narrative. As a matter of fact, pretty much none of the apostles are. I mean, Peter is, he's a main actor. Paul is, those are the two dueling figures, if you will, throughout the rest of the book. 
but everyone else is into obscurity. And that really doesn't fit with the, uh, you know, you've got 120 people, it's not a lot of people, everyone else is going and dying in obscurity. That's not the ideal of American ministry when you're thinking of what you want out of ministry. And yet, Matthias, Justice, uh, we go on in the narrative and it, they're left behind. Why is that? What, is, what are the key themes in the book of Acts? The word of God goes forth by human messengers, but it's God's word that is going to the ends of the earth. It gets there by people, but the point is God is acting. Jesus is still acting by virtue of his Holy Spirit. The apostles are important. They are apostles, but even the apostles are just messengers. They're just people. And they don't get notoriety. They don't get glory because they're apostles. God, gospel, Jesus, his word, those are the things that get glory in the text. So, I'd be disappointed if I were Justice. Uh, if I were Matthias reading this book, I'd be wondering where my name is. And that's not the point. The point is Jesus is reigning by virtue of his spirit. His word is progressing, and it's going to be successful to make it to Rome and to the ends of the earth. So with the 12 selected then, the tension is resolved. We've kind of moved through this phase. When the day of Pentecost arrives is where we are going to start next time. The tension is resolved. The tribal heads are established. And now God will act to renew an eschatological true Israel at Pentecost. He's going to fulfill his promise to unite Israel again under one king, Ezekiel 37, 15 through 28. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him, then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all of the backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. From humble beginnings of a small group which obediently awaits the direction of their king, God will build his kingdom. God is sovereign over everything and victorious over those who oppose him. He destroys all that oppose his anointed and his kingdom. Under the providential selection of God, even this uh, even, Matthias, uh, even the selection of Matthias to complete the twelve once again. Thus, the tribal heads of Israel are reconstituted in preparation for the restoration of Israel by the establishment of true Israel at Pentecost. Know, therefore, nothing can thwart God's plan for the kingdom. He takes a small group of dedicated individuals, sovereignly uses evil, evil actors, and is still able, able to sovereignly orchestrate that to fulfill the restoration of Israel and do engage in community faithfully, run from idolatry, and trust in God's sovereignty during evil days. Jared, you want to pray to close this?